You're listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the ProSound Web Podcast Network. Signal to Noise is proudly supported by Audix. Check out the new TM2 integrated acoustic coupler for in-ear monitors and their new line of studio headphones and condenser mics at audixusa.com. Alan and Heath has asked us to read the following statement. Caution. The mixing techniques featured in this episode have been performed by trained survival experts and should not be attempted without adult supervision. We cannot be held responsible for excess 789 Hz or insufficient 2K in your mix, but we do support you saying, Kyle made me do it, if anyone asked what happened. Welcome back to the Signal Noise podcast on ProSound Web. Uh, we are really excited to be joining you uh, from the virtual show floor here at the uh, NAM Believe in Music Week, uh, the Alan Heath booth. So if you're listening to this episode on your regular uh, players, check the link in the description for a video of this episode. Not to be missed. Kyle has no pants on uh, for this episode. And uh, we're really excited to be here. And uh, we also have a special guest coming up uh, later on in the show. Joe Lamont, the president of NAM, is going to be visiting with us. And we're pretty stoked for that as well. Uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Chris Leonard and Kyle Chernside. What's going on, fellas? What's up? How's it going? Hey, hanging. Hanging as usual. Ready to, ready to do this thing. Virtual NAM week, man. This is, uh, this is odd. We all get to get sick at home instead of on the <laughs> And all the unemployed funk bass players will still be unemployed. <laughs> but, Kyle, you don't have to listen to cymbals this week. Holy cow, dude. I went to take a... So that's that was the story. I was, at, I was at my booth, and I had to take a tech call from a touring engineer about his console. So I walked away, but I walked right into the wall of cymbals, and there was a kid just running down the wall. And I was like, this is... Ridiculous. Ah. <laughs> and then I go back to our booth and we're right across from like a, a couple bass manufacturers. And then all of a sudden the super high funk bass starts popping off. I'm like, man, sorry, dude, there's nowhere to escape this phone call. <laughs> but yeah, I kind of miss Nam. I miss Nam. Nam's fun. Like just new products, seeing people, um, the lizard guy who walks around with all the tattoos on his face. The, I, tore, the, I toured with him, uh, so what? he was the opening. He was the opening act when I was out with Disturbed on a Jägermeister tour. He was like, he'd come out and he would like hang kegerators and stuff. Jägermeister kegerators, like from his like earlobes and his tongue and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And all the um, local bands from the Orange County area that want to give you your CDs and they're wearing like <laughs> the colored contacts and the big pants. Yeah, I miss all that. Michael, who do we uh, who do we have on today? Well, our guest this episode is my buddy Mike Bangs. He's the live sound and touring manager with Alan and Heath, and he's also a monitor engineer for George Strait. And when I found out that Mike was working with George Strait, um, I was like, I actually I texted these guys, Mike, and I said um, we should try to work in. I said I have a proposal. I vote we try to work in as many George Strait song titles throughout the episode subtly. Do you guys think we should do this? Check yes or no. Um, and then I realized that was the <laughs> only <laughs> little meta joke. And then I was always like, that's the only George Strait song tell I knew off the top of my head. So, uh, it was destined to fail, but anyway, Mike, thanks for, thanks for being with us, man. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Your background looks way cooler than mine. I thought I was the cool kid on campus here with my little light up, uh, light bridge there, but you got the, you got the big guns. Yeah, I'm pretty spoiled and lucky this is actually my kitchen believe it or not and, uh, this thing this gee thing, i wish i had the, a large format console in my kitchen it's one of the, one of the many reasons why i'm single this has been in my kitchen for years and uh it, it's not leaving so i've got this in my kitchen and i've got uh two motorcycles in my front living room so yeah there's many reasons why i'm I'm single. Uh, so, I mean, Mike, well, first of all, public thank you for always taking my emails and texts when I break something on one of your consoles and, and screw myself over. Brother, it's always out, a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to hear from um, people. I am so lucky that I get paid to talk about consoles. Like, whoever thought that would be a thing, you know? That's kind of the theme for... Uh, what we talk about a lot on the show and, and um, what we're going to talk about later on in the episode with, with Joe, um, finding your niche in this market and, and 
finding your passion and, and what is it about this that gets you excited and, and how do you get into that? So I, I mean, we could start there. Like how did, how did Mike Bangs end up where Mike Bangs is now in his kitchen with a, with a console? <laughs> uh, it started out like probably most people with just a love for music. You know, um, I wanted to, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a rock star and be on TV. And then um, the more uh, I played and, you know, got, into that i realized that uh it's kind of a nightmare to be famous and uh that's not something that i really wanted so um i got but what made things different for me is that um i had this vision one day of like i'm not a very good musician so i have to find a way to cheat what can i do to set myself apart from um other people in my industry in my local market and i noticed that there was a lot of really good guitar players that were way better than me but they just sounded like crap because they didn't put any time and attention they would spend hours setting up their guitar and messing with tones on their amps and then just throw a busted 58 in front of it uh, and run it through <laughs> a mackie and then blaze it through some distorted speakers and it was like okay, there's something that I can manage. That's something that I can do um, that could make me sound better and um, maybe give me an edge against someone that can play better than me. So I started doing a lot of uh, research on my own on things like that that I could do and um, figured out a few things on my own and then got to the point where other people started asking me, hey, how did you do this? How did you do that? Can you do that for us? And um, started being a lot easier to do that for other people and be good at that instead of being a mediocre guitar player in an ocean of much better guitar players. Um, so it just went from there. And then I did the, the whole club rat thing, regional touring, um, and then uh, moved myself out West and, um, you know, decided to, to go for it full time. So, you know, that's, pretty much the progression of things. Jeff Hawley said that you were going to be bringing your guitar uh, with us on the show today and you'd be singing. <laughs> you know what's funny is that that's one thing the, the the dust got blown off the guitar because of the pandemic. So I actually have been playing a little bit. I'm still terrible. So <laughs> you'll never see me on video, but uh, I have I have picked the old Strat back up again um, because I've actually been home. It's funny, this is the most time that I've ever been in my house ever in my entire life. Like I have never sat still this this long ever. I'd love to I'd love to hear you and and Kyle kind of put your heads together because you guys both have a, a lot of common experience and DNA, so to speak, in the fact that you know Kyle spent a lot of time doing what you do, which is all hours of the night. Someone's got a problem with this piece of gear, they're going to pick up their phone and they're going to call you, and you're that you're that you know, the, the life jacket on the end of the phone that picks up. Um, and, and it kind of really puts you in a unique role. Uh, so know, I'd love to hear you guys talk about that. People are, are always like, oh, you know, that's got to be so annoying. And, you know, when, when I interviewed for this job, uh, you know, no one else really is willing to do this. And so I don't think that, that they ever thought that I would take phone calls at 3 o'clock in the morning like I do because most people don't. Um, but honestly, it's no different, you know, the, the years before, I took this job, I was a touring production manager, and I would get stupid requests from artists and from crew members 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a decade plus. So really nothing changed um, as far as that goes. Now you get stupid you know, requests they, from me at three in the morning. <laughs> uh, so your, questions, your questions are good. You know, I, and there's, there's no stupid questions, you know, only stupid people, right? But no, like, just kidding. Like Kyle. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Man. Well, I mean, yeah. for me, we're talking about – I'm a freelancer, right? So I don't have a warehouse full of gear. I don't make a ton on rental budget. The, the tools that I own, I paid for out of my own pocket. When you're talking about someone making that investment into a piece of equipment, for me, it's not just about what can this thing do, what are its functions. For me, it's when I have a problem or I get stuck – um, and, and the clock is, is ticking. I need, if I need help, I need help now. I don't want to, you know, yeah. hear back from an email two weeks from now. So, right. um, to me, that is part of the price that you pay when you're buying a piece of gear. I'm paying for that. I'm paying for you to pick up the phone, right? So there's, 
um, the service and the support and the relationship that you have with the people who are making and supporting um, the equipment that you're investing in. To me, that's a huge, a huge piece of the puzzle. Um, and I mean, Kyle, what's you know when you you did that for like seven years, right? You were you were yeah. like the guy. So I mean, how how did that feel? You know, I'm sure you connect with what Mike's talking about. Totally, and and it was kind of. Um it's difficult, man. One, because you have to know ins and outs of the council. And I think one of the most important things you said was, is I only can afford so much. So whether you have a, a council inventory of 30 or you have a council inventory of your personal, that phone call at 3 a.m. is just as important as a dude with 30 or one um, or none. If you're just the engineer and you're renting a council, that's important as well. And I don't know how it is for bangs, but when I started with the company I worked for, um, there was no touring people there. And it was odd to me. I was like, what, you guys have never flown a PA? You guys have never had bad catering in Belgium? Like, <laughs> um, it, it was odd to me because I felt like the odd man out. But it, it really is. We're wired differently than the normal corporate folk. Customer support is like a love. It really is. And I explained it when I got hired by the manufacturer. It was like an animator that spent their whole life animating stuff and finally got hired by Pixar or Disney or whatever. That was me. I was the engineer that busted my ass, asked the questions, took the tours, missed the family, missed birthdays, missed holidays, missed everything in my life and put myself into a position where I was working for Disney. I was working for Pixar and now I could give back to my touring guys or my production guys who needed my help. When I started doing this in the club scene, like none of the engineers wanted to tell you about secrets. None of the engineers wanted to give up the tricks. There wasn't a real class for live audio. There really wasn't. It was broadcast or studio. So justifying the gig, like, customer support justified what I had done my whole life. Hmm. Answering the phone at three in the morning, answering the phone call from the lady at the church who doesn't know how to turn on the PA for pastor. That became like, I love doing it. I, I did, man. And you get ownership. You, you find ownership. Like that desk behind him, he owns that brand. You know what I mean? Like, that, that's an ownership that you can't have through anything else but doing what you do. And that's kind of my take on it. Like, I miss it. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say, say it live on this thing. I miss taking customer support calls. I still take customer support calls to this day because I've made so many cool friends from doing support for their tours that now they still call me, you know, and I'll still answer questions. Like, sometimes I'm eating with my family and I won't answer as quick as I used to, but... Still, it's it's my love and my passion. Those desks, that desk sitting next to him, it, it it's a love and a passion, man. And you dig in, and the help and response that you get from your clients is tenfold, man. It's great. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a remarkable experience. Something that I never thought that I would do or enjoy doing. And uh, it it is. I I second everything that you said. You know, um, a big thing for me was that. Um, I was out touring on other manufacturers' desks and they would offer me free stuff and try to wine and dine me and stuff like that, but they were never there when I needed them and they would never, they never listened to things that me and all of my peers asked for and nothing ever got done about improving things that, that were problematic. And that was really frustrating. And I wanted to, you know, I, there's got to be a better way. So, you know, I completely live and die by my relationship with our engineers. Our customer support is everything to me, you know, and because I've been um, in the middle of a load-in on a Saturday and, the, you know, something's wrong with the desk and I can't get anyone to help me. And I don't want anyone to feel that helpless as I felt on that day. And so I try my best um, to not let that happen. And uh, it's it's a really good feeling when you know, you answer the phone and someone's like, they're so happy that you answered the phone because they're, you know, their stuff's hanging in the wind and they just really need help. And it's nice to, it's nice to be there. I'm not a person that could ever, you know, stomach or handle being a, a nurse or an EMT. And, you know, I have so much respect for those people, but this is, you know, as close as I can get. And I, I'm not by any means comparing those two things. Um, but, uh, 
you know, it's the, it is a really um, special relationship. And I, I'm not just um, the, the guy on the end of the phone for most people. I mean, I'm close friends with so many people, many of whom have been guests on your podcast um, that are, you know, that are longtime friends. And, uh, you know, a lot of people um, were friends before I was in this job. And, you know, the, the, the relationship changed dynamic a little bit, but, you know, we still have those relationships and they're, they're priceless. So I, I'm very thankful for that. You know, the other side, of, it's not just customer support. So I, I'm curious to hear more about, you know, it's one thing to know where all the knobs and menus are on a screen. It's another thing to train people. So from an education standpoint, a lot of what you're responsible for is making these videos and, and training outlines. What was that like um, to having to outline these things and actually be able to convey them? What did you learn about yourself through that process? What, what's the education side of it been like for you? That is my absolute passion now. And that's been a huge shift. When I was back touring and I was a PM, I was like, I don't have time for questions. I don't have time to teach people. You need to know your stuff before you come out here or I'm going to put you on a plane because I don't have time for this. And I never thought that I would be a teacher. And now it is my absolute favorite thing. It's my passion. The last couple of years, um, I have uh, been an instructor at the AES at, at NAM. Um, academy and uh, it I absolutely love doing it the people the the environment I mean the show floor is cool and I enjoyed being on the show floor but having that room in the Kyle, in the Kyle hotel, didn't. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's a yeah there, you know I stay away from the symbol room uh, but the last few years I haven't been on the booth and I, I kind of miss the energy but having my having that room up there and having people come in and um, learn and participate. And, you know, I've been able to do fun things like, um, bring, uh, bring guests in. Um, I listened to, uh, your episode with Drew, who's one of my closest friends and one of my favorite humans. Um, and he was, you know, I brought him in and had him teach a class and that was so much fun. And, you know, I'm actually, uh, launching the, um, D live Academy, um, uh, virtually, um, at NAM this year. And, um, so here we are, but the education is so important. Um, our users are so much happier when they know what they're doing. You know, I always try and, you know, encourage people, um, to, you know, realize that there's always more to learn. You know, we've all been doing this for decades, but I don't ever want to feel like I've learned it all. I, I don't think I ever could. I mean, if I lived five lifetimes, I would never learn it all. You know, even after 20 years of mixing live, I get my rear end handed to me on a regular basis. You know, I still have shows that go down in flames, you know, and um, the, it's just an ever, um, ever expanding learning process. And that's what makes it fun for me. And um, so being a part of that cycle has been uh, very rewarding. Uh, that's awesome. So the, I think the key thing that Michael said earlier is that you've chosen to be on the right end of the snake and that's monitors, right? We, we all know that that's the best <laughs> yes. end of the snake, right? So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We always have fun with, with the ribbing and uh, because, because we're so outnumbered, you know, it's easy. You can, you can, uh, you know, swing a bag of rocks and uh, hit a uh, front of house engineer. It's like, you know, it's like guitar players. Usually you're swinging the, uh... it in catering, right? <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah. Every Everyone's a front of house engineer. Everyone's a producer. So, yeah. And I didn't choose to be a monitor engineer for any specific reason other than that I don't like the limelight. And uh, I don't like being around uh, huge groups of people. You know, I was joking that I don't cross the barricade. Even when I was a PM, if I was on the other side of the barricade, something was on fire. You know, like I had to be there to keep my job. Otherwise I would not be there and I wouldn't be there very long. You know, I just like being on stage and I like, you know, having two layers of security between me and the drunk people in the crowd. You know, it's one of the one of the things that took some adjustment with uh, doing George Strait because we play football stadiums um, on the floor in the round, and so I've got people that paid um, unbelievable money to be right behind me and sitting with their face in my butt, basically. Um, and you know, they can they, they charge can extra for me. that? Yeah, they pay for that. Yeah, I think they're really disappointed. They're like, "Oh, we got front row tickets, but we're like right 
him right behind this guy. Um, and they're like, does he really have to be there? You know? Uh, so that, that took some adjustment because it's really easy when you're in monitors to, uh, you know, no one's going to ask you questions and things like that. But now like people can reach over the barricade and tap me on the shoulder and, and whatnot. So, um, that, that took some adjustment, but yeah, the, uh, I know that you're a modern engineer, Chris, and, um, you know, it's a, it's a small group, but I'm, Kyle mixed monitors yeah. for Carly Ray Jepsen, which is that was that's like my bucket list is to work with her, man. So that's pretty cool. Were you there with her when Pavin was out front? Yeah, I've known Pavin forever right and years and years and years and years. Uh, yeah. When when he called, I was like, yeah, man, totally do that. Anytime I can work with that dude, for sure. Yeah, He's I, a good I, I guy. like both yep. sides, and the reason I like both sides, and I always say this, is I know what the feel is now. I know what the feel is for the front of house guy to deal with the monitor engineer. I know what the monitor engineer has to do with the artist and, and the front of house engineer. So it's kind of like one of those things. Don't tell me how to do my job unless you know how to do my job. So um, especially with in-ears and clang and all these cool things that are coming out on the other end of the snake, the right end or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's, it's interesting. Like you said, it's a knowledge base and <laughs> we all kind of go for that. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm going to die. You okay, buddy? Please well, don't. Maybe this might be it. Jeez. <laughs> it's the way he would have wanted to go. <laughs> Talking to Mike Bangs on a signal noise. Weezy, I'm coming. <laughs> I, I have acquired an appreciation for mixing monitors. It's an entirely different vocabulary for me in terms of uh, I, what I what was really interesting to me is I, I have six people in the band, the drummer and bass player share a mix, and I have five different modes, six different modes of communication when I talk to each band member about what they're hearing, what they want changed. It was really funny. I, I gave them the uh, the, the the SQ for you app because uh, they have an SQ six uh, that they're on now, and and four of them said. I can't believe you didn't give this to us sooner, and if you take it away, I'm going to be upset with you. And two of them said, I have no interest in this, and I don't trust myself to turn these knobs, and I'd want to, I want to just ask you for stuff. So it's just really interesting to see um, you know, how each person is perceiving uh, how I can help them and, and what they need to be comfortable and what my role is in that. And it, 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 that's, been, uh, that's been a real uh, learning experience for me, and it's, it's definitely something that uh, – I've, I really looked forward to, to, to developing. So I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah. To me, the, the personal interaction supersedes the, the technical um, side of it. I, I teach seminars in, um, you know, monitor engineering concepts and basics and, you know, try and help people who are interested in becoming a monitor engineer. And one of the first things that I point out is that in my opinion, doing monitors is 60% psychology and 40% technology. So it's the, the interaction with the humans um, is a lot more important in a lot of circumstances than actually, you know, doing the, the engineering. That's there's, there's a lot of poor audio engineers out there that have monitoring gigs because they get along with the, with the artist. Um, And if you can't, get along with the artist and you can't earn their trust, then you, what you do on the console is irrelevant. It's a very special relationship. And that's why I like being a monitor engineer. You have, you have a, a relationship with these people that, that they don't have with anyone else because you're, you're basically all they have um, between them and the, and the performance, you know? So that's a, that's a special thing. And I actually really enjoy that. Uh, side of it it's uh it's exciting and i i enjoy the interaction with with people and uh it's hard because i had a lot of gigs in the past where it was like you know you're working with superstars and it's like don't look at them don't talk to them don't touch them and i had this rule of you know stay keep myself as distant and as invisible to the artist as possible um, and what I realized as I went through my career is that I was just working for the wrong artist you know uh, mm. I was lucky enough later in life to in something you know you don't always get to pick your gig you got to eat you know but um hopefully as you grow through your career you get to be a little bit more selective and i just got to a point you know i used to feel like you could say or do anything to me if you paid me enough um and that that changed somewhere in my 30s and i was like you can't i'm not going to do this anymore you know i need i need the 
this, that, and the other. You have to respect me as well as, you know, pay me. And, and uh, so that's, that's a big shift. Um, but there are, you know, good artists out there, even superstars. George is one of the sweetest human beings on earth. Um, and, you know, I'm very thankful to have my relationship with him. You know, I'm not going to say we're friends by any means, um, you know, uh, because he's a very busy man, but those are the kind of people that you want to work for. And then you can have these relationships. Um, you know, you don't have to, uh, get, uh, assaulted on a regular basis, um, at work. Although I will say that, uh, it, it did a lot of good for me to be, uh, beat upon by, by pop stars. It, uh, it makes you tolerance and, and calm. We, we have a very important thing that we really haven't narrowed in on here yet. Um, where's your favorite place to eat in the country? Um, so I'm a ramen fanatic and, uh, wow. so the first thing off the, off the top of my head would be, uh, the original Tato, uh, ramen in, in the Lower East side of New York. Um, and second to that would probably be dirty Frank's hot dogs in Columbus, Ohio. Um, wow. Um, and then I'm from KC, so KC barbecue obviously has a huge, um, thing to me, um, you know, so, uh, I'm a, I'm a Joe's guy. I know it's controversial, but, uh, you know, I was, not, a, I was not a Joe's LC's guy. guy. I like them all. See, they all, it depends on what I'm in the mood for. You know, if I want a sausage, I'm going to Wyandotte, you know, if I want, you know, different things. I'm going to go different places, but to me, Joe's is just super well-rounded. Um, as far as, you know, anything I'm going to get, they have the best beans out there. Um, there's like four different animals in their beans, which is just completely amazing. Um, so, that's a great band name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> An album title for yeah. beans yeah. with four different animals. Uh, speaking, here's the greatest segue in the history of signal to noise podcast. Speaking of Joe, uh, I think we are going to jump in real quick and, and uh, hear from our special guest on this episode, uh, Joe Lamont, president of NAM. Uh, I'm sure that you have quite a lot on your plate throughout this week and, and with all the, the stuff that you guys have going on and you're trying to organize, so we don't want to take too much of your time. But uh, first of all, we do want to thank you for, for being with us. Um, and I mean, what's kind of been the thing? I'm sure you're so overwhelmed with everything that's happening. What's, what's sort of that thing that keeps you going powering yeah. through all of this, you know, the mission behind all of this. So you think about, you know, the, your listeners have had, you know, an incredibly tough year in many ways as well, it, it, but not a shared experience, right? I mean, those of us who are traditionally doing large gathering events, whether it's tours, festivals, or things like NAMM shows, um, really impacted. I mean, completely. This, this pandemic has taken our, our world like a snow globe and shaken it upside down. Those who are, you know, there's more, probably more music that has been recorded and produced this year, uh, more creativity, more um, things like podcasts and stuff. So there's another part of the industry that's absolutely thriving and creatively thriving with innovation, which is awesome. Um, so it's not a shared experience, but, um, you know, I think what we're all trying to do, NAM included, is to try and figure out the way to navigate, you know, Believe in Music Week, which, you know, we're here right now. And um, this is an experience where we're trying to ga gather the global industry. This is, again, this is about 130 countries who are on this site watching what we're doing and um, merge that with what will be maybe this new return because physical events are, are important. We know that we're social animals and, and people have been gathering for 6,000 years of recorded human history throughout all kinds of issues. There's, this isn't the first pandemic humans have gone through yet. We always seem to come back together again. There's something primal about that, something necessary of human development. We're social animals. So how, what we're doing with believe in music week will then be a part of the physical shows um, that's really what we're all trying to figure out. And maybe that's what the, a lot of the touring industry is experiencing. Um, you know, uh, obviously the recorded music in, in that industry has been shaken up completely over the last two decades, but this is our turn now. <laughs> the physical events are getting shaken up and we're having to really evolve quickly. Um, the one thing that, that definitely I have no doubt about is that music and the connection that we all feel through music is more important now than ever. It may be the one thing that actually kept this thing from falling apart last year, <laughs> that people were connecting this way in many ways through music. Um, so no doubt that music is uh, more important than ever. Like guitar sales, keyboard sales, 
record years. I don't think there's a guitar manufacturer in Believe in Music Week this week that has any guitars to sell. <laughs> well, I was going to say, my uh, a family friend, yeah, a family friend said, hey, I think I'm going to learn guitar. And I called my Sweetwater rep and he said, we actually were totally yeah. out of guitars. And I said, <laughs> what? Right? <laughs> when was the last time that happened? You know, I'll tell you when the last time that happened. It was when the day after the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan show. That was the last time we've wow. had this big of a disconnect between supply and demand. So That's fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah, yes, right? Yeah, yes. Now we just got to get back to being able to do what we love, artists and, and, and players, get out and play. And audiences to experience the collective, um, you know, human role of being part of something big, whether it's Coachella or an intimate club date. I mean, that's humanity with art. So, yeah, now we, we have more of a, actually a, a supply problem than a demand problem right now. But we've got to get past this pandemic. We've got to get we've got to get past the fact when we can not risk our lives by being in the same room with other people. You know, that's, that's crazy. You know, we want to be healthy. We, you know, we're going to have to make changes to our show, to the NAMM show in the future about how we think about health, how we think about safety. We've always thought about safety. I mean, after we've always thought about safety at NAMM show after Las Vegas, we had to redouble how any event looked at safety, right? That's, you know, working with the event safety Alliance on, you know, again, a lot of things with the Event Safety Alliance, which I love working with. If your readers don't, or listeners don't know who we, they are. We had uh, Steve Edelman, their VP. Yeah. Uh, he's been on our yeah. show, actually. Yep. So, I mean, you know, our discussions used to be about weather. You know, what happens when, you know, how do you track a weather event on an outdoor concert so the things don't blow and fall over? Uh, and then it obviously became more security issues with, you know, not just terrorism, but, you know, the things that happened, um, you know, with fires. on. So now we have a whole new element of, of safety, which is just, you know, personal health. How do we bring people from around the world together who have just been on airplanes for 15, 16 hours, um, staying up late, getting up early, not taking care of themselves? How do we think about holistic safety at a trade show? But the concerts are going to have the same thing. People are going to have an expectation that we thought about this. I do want to say, Joe, I'm I'm really pleased with what you guys have put together. You know, we've done a lot in our little podcast world here. As soon as everything shut down, we saw all of these top level professionals come together and just start sharing knowledge. And, uh, you know, so we've, we've tried to do as much of that as we could on our show and, and just the whole universe of people that we're plugged into. So uh, I'm very thankful and very fortunate to just kind of be a part of this cultural shift where we said, all right, you know, we can't be out doing what we do right now, but let's let's all improve. Let's all, you know, do some training. Let's all do some some knowledge sharing. And um, part of that is how we think about our careers. And I would love to hear from you. I bet when you were in high school, you weren't saying, when I grow up, I want to be the president of NAM, right? Um, so how, you know, how did you kind of get on this path? We'd like to talk about on this show how, you know, whether you're a front of house engineer or you polish ukuleles on a show floor, um, you're in the music business and that's, that's part of the music business. So like kind of what does that path look like for you and how did you end up here? That's, that's a, cool, a cool journey. Great question. And, you know, and our industry is, in my opinion, a true meritocracy. Right. It doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter what school you went to. Uh, you work hard in this industry. You can find your place. And I think that's the message to any young up and coming person that's listening to this. And, and I'd love to have that be shared as widely as possible. This industry has a place for you if you have a passion for music. And there's a bunch of people like all of us who want to help you. We're here to make sure you don't fail. We want the professionals in this industry to do well. We want the industry yeah. to grow. So, you know, my path is, is very, very probably a lot like others. I was a drummer. I had a passion for music. Um, throughout the way, I've worked in music stores. I've done installs in churches and uh, in office buildings and dentist office. Um, I've been on tour a lot as an artist. And then I discovered I love touring and I discovered that I liked actually making more money touring. And it was the it was the tour managers and the production managers that got actually paid before the tour ever started and got paid usually for a period of time afterwards. And sometimes we got to have our own room, too. Sometimes the bands had to room with people. I got my own room as a production manager. So I became a production manager, um, saw the world, loved it. Um, Turned 29, had long hair, met uh, a woman who ended up being my wife. We were doing a a recording in San Francisco with Todd Rundgren called Second Wind. And he had a great concept of let's record the band, a big band. uh, But instead of recording them in a studio, I want the energy of a live concert. So we booked the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco for a week, sold it out all five nights, whatever it ended up being. And we recorded every night as if it were a studio. Yet there was an audience. And so the energy of the band was there's this huge audience. And but the real audience was this Sony Dash machine in a truck in the back. 
Um, but during that week, we were camped out in San Francisco for a couple of weeks and through a mutual friend, I met my wife. So ultimately ended up coming off the road. By the way, that was a fascinating album to record. There was sets of rules like Todd would come out every night and prep the audience. Even though it was sold that way, there were still some ticket holders saying, we're going to see a concert and we're going to get drunk and yell. And he would go, no, you guys have to be silent. If you make a bunch of noises, I'm going to stop the song and we're going to start over again. And so every night he would ask the crowd, what sign do you want from me to say now you can applaud? Because he wanted to wait for the, I would be on the headphones. Okay, we got a good clean end. Okay, now everyone can applaud. So every night people pick the various signals they wanted from Todd when they could applaud. Um, anyway, so that met my wife, came off the road, went back to work in the music stores and loved it. I mean, built up um, a wonderful music store in Sacramento called Skips Music. We had a program there to get adults back into playing music. We saw this weekend warrior group of people who wanted to play again, but they all ended up having to get jobs like me. Um, and so we created this program. NAM saw it, NAM licensed it. I ended up meeting everyone at NAM. At age 38, I now start working from Sacramento, commuting every week to San Diego on Southwest Airlines to work at NAM. Two and a half years later, my pre my, my predecessor, CEO of NAM, retired, and, and they're looking around, and I thought I ducked pretty good, but I didn't <laughs> duck well enough. <laughs> And so that was 20 years ago. Um, so, yeah, it, it is the classic story of any listener here. And, you know, we all have our passion for music. We find that we're wired. Somewhere along the line, you find out, I like doing this and this, and I don't like doing this and this. So you start sorting yourself into what I really love. I want to stay an artist. Or I want to be in a recording studio. I want to invent new products for Moog. I want to be on the road. And, and so you find, and sometimes you find three or four of those things that you like. That's what I did. And then ultimately you just kind of weave your way through. And next thing you know, you look back and I'm 60 going, when are the adults coming back? That was a hell of a, hell of a ride, man. <laughs> What's next? You know? Um, and, and I hope everyone has that same journey that they, they, find through their love of music and the people that are in this business that they find something that they do well. And if you like it, you'll do it well. If you don't like it, don't give me long, long subtraction or, or multiplication tables. Don't like it, ain't going to do it. <laughs> but there's a bunch of stuff I do love like doing. And I found, you know, I was asking this panel yesterday that's going to be on Believe TV. I said, okay, new question. What's your superpower? And some of them said, you know, I can play really well. I'm a great engineer. Well, my superpower was able to take very, you know, complex and chaotic things and put them into order. I mean, you can make a living doing that. Uh huh. So, you know, and that's what probably every tour manager ever does or a production manager. You know, so you find your superpower. Every one of you, each one of you has a superpower. Everyone listening has a superpower. The sooner you zero in on that and say, okay, in the music ecosystem, how can I apply that uh, to, to the most value to everybody? The more value you bring to other people, guess what? Your phone rings. You know, that's how it works. I'm curious, um, you guys have a big focus on education, um, yeah. and it's been a bit very apparent from early on. Um, what how, Have you seen over this past year an even further push for that, and what efforts have been made to, um, you know, this past year, pretty much everyone's focus on education? So what has NAM done in, in those terms? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question, and I don't know how much time we have because I could go on and on, but there's been, a, there's been a, a focus on trying to even get through this. So we've done a lot of lobbying. A lot of groups are lobbying to try and make sure that gig workers were able to access um, unemployment at PPP, helping small businesses get PPP loans. Our NAM members typically, they don't know how to do forms, fill out, you know, so we literally handheld thousands of NAM members to, okay, here's how you apply for your PPP loan. You need this form and this form and this form. Now get online, da, da, da. you know, so we were really trying to help people at least survive and get through that. Um, helping a lot of music stores, for example, learn how to teach online. Overnight, they had to move all their lesson programs online. Public school music teachers had to move online, helping them do that. Um, we funded aerosol studies on how, in a band room, certain instruments have aerosol spray more than others. So what protections do you need around, you know, find out, fun fact, clarinets, put out a lot less aerosols than a, uh, let's see, what was the other one? I think a trumpet or an oboe, the worst, you know. But clarinet's pretty safe, who knew, until we funded this aerosol study. Making sure people could get through that part, you know, and making sure that um, what was gonna stick. Some of these are gonna be forever, these changes are made. Some are gonna be temporary. Um, you know, on the idea that the touring professionals, just thinking about how we will tour safely going forward. Um, on Believe TV is my interview with Garth Brooks. 
and how he's talking about how he and his crew created this drive-in concert, uh, which ultimately ended being streamed and quite quite successful for him. Um, but they had to think that through from scratch. So what lessons were learned there sharing? It's sort of like your podcast is about, we've all been through things. What can we share with each other so that I don't have to make the same mistakes you made? So Absolutely. a lot of NAMS education is peer-to-peer. -peer. It's you teaching a class. It's you know peer-to-peer -peer sharing, um, and that's the best way to learn. And I think what's coming out of the, the Believe in TV education, I think there's over, I can't remember, well, over 200 sessions on our part, and the manufacturers like Alan Heath and others doing this, there's hundreds of others of the exhibitors that are doing education sessions. We're all trying to say, when we emerge out of this, and don't forget, this will pass, right? This, this too shall pass. And historically, whenever any of these things have happened, what comes next is a renaissance, is a renaissance of art and music and euphoria. <clears throat> so we I need to be prepared. Chain mail comes back. We need to prepare. We need to have a hand in that and prepare what we don't want to come back, just to your point. But we, this is gonna, we need to prepare for uh, the not too distant future when every one of you are going to be turning down work. Like right. everyone's going on the tour at the same time. How do we manage that? It's going to happen. Everyone's going to want a tour at the same time because this is a coiled spring. Everyone's going to want to fly at the same time. You know, I mean, it's a good time to look at oil stocks. You know, people are going to want to travel again after being quarantined all this time. Um, and we need to be ready for that. So I think a lot of the education here in Believe TV is how do we get through this? But also don't be don't you know, people have this human nature of whatever condition is at that moment is how it's always going to be. No, you got a plan. Each one of us have to plan on what comes next, so we're ready for it because it's coming sooner than we think. So that's really what the education. It's a platform. <clears throat> it is reborn every year, every day. I'm sure the whole platform. We start with a blank whiteboard, literally. What's on people's minds? What's changing? How can we help people get ready for that? So uh, and people come to the show for that because everyone wants to be better, right? Everyone wants to improve. Um, whatever facet of the business you're in, it's competitive. If you're not learning you're falling behind. So yeah. uh, I love having Nam be that place where everyone comes to say, what's the latest? I want to learn from that, which is why people gathered anyway, right? <clears throat> Think about all the old, you know, in the old days, Indian tribes, I always use this word tribes, and I use the term crossroads, but Indian tribes would gather, they'd be war, they'd be at war all year long. But for one brief period, they would all come together and they'd actually have these meetings, powwows, whatever they were called. And they learned from each other. How do you make that? Error? How do you do this? How, yeah. You know, they actually were learning from each other. And that's how people learn. And it was just genetic in us, I think, to gather that way. And then people split apart again and they go back to their normal thing. But what, whether it's the Silk Road, <clears throat> um, trade fairs in Germany going back to the 15th century, people gather and they gather to learn and trade and network and call what you will today with all these kind of tools. But it's baked into our genomic code to gather and learn from each other. And that's what NAM education is at the shows. And now virtually on Believe TV. Yeah. Well, Joe, that, uh, I really want to thank you for, for stopping by our show and sharing your message. It's been a real pleasure to, to have you come talk to us. So thanks yeah. again for your time. And I, I'm, yeah. I'm positive all our listeners are enjoying the conversation as well. We're looking yeah, forward thanks, to getting back to the show floor. Yep. Hope to get back. Let me let me back sometime. We still got to talk touring. We didn't talk touring. Yeah, we'd, oh, we'd love to have you back. <laughs> on. Absolutely. All right. Bye, guys. See you Take soon. Take it easy, Joe. Thank, thank you. you. And a big thank you to to Joe Lamont for coming by the show and and uh, chatting with us. And I hope I think we might have to reach back out, Chris. I'd love to get him to come back on and do a, a full episode with us, uh, schedule permitting, because he uh, he seemed like he had a lot more cool stuff to talk about that we just uh, didn't have time to get to. So we we do thank Joe for that. Back to bangs here, uh, Mike. I want to dig in a little bit to your work with with George, like what you're doing on the console. Like, I mean, what's your inputs and outputs look like? I mean, I, I kind of you know I got to scratch my technical itch a little bit here. Sure. Uh, well, I uh, use DLive, um, obviously. Uh, I'm, I'm spoiled. I don't have anything else ever. Um, I actually uh, got the, the gig. Um, he had a longtime monitor engineer who was a DLive user who I trained and you know uh, worked with. And um, he decided to move his family um, to New Zealand for a great career opportunity. And um, you know, gave me. Was the, he in Lord of the Rings? Was that the opportunity? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, no, no. 
it, that wasn't it. Um, but he is running, I believe, the largest church in um, New Zealand. Um, they actually they have they have like a fifteen thousand seat arena that they rent out for concerts. So it's a it's a big. Anyway, um, you know, big ups to Josh. He's a really good guy, and uh, we all miss him. Uh, but uh, he went on to greener pastures. But um, so the the George gig, I, I'm super spoiled. You know, they've been playing together for thirty five years, and you don't get that very often. You know, I was lucky enough to tour with Petty. Um, I was lucky enough to tour with Boz Skaggs, you know, a, f a few other artists that, you know, have that kind of lineage, but it's, it's rare and very special. And um, so it's a lot different than any other gig in that the, the caliber of player and the relationship between them is like nothing, you know, most people are ever going to see, um, you know, so I have uh, a, I have a lot going on on stage. Uh, we've got um, a little over 70 inputs, um, give or take, depending on what type of room we're in. Um, I think I mentioned that we play in the round, or it's actually in the square. It's a pretty unique thing. Um, he actually has four. Um, he doesn't move around very much. Um, he kind of just stays in his position, which is really nice. But we have four positions for him, one in each corner of the of the stage. So he does two songs at one position and then walks to the next one and does two songs and walks to the next one and does two songs. So there's not a bad seat in the place. Um, and it's it's really fun because every two songs, it's like the show starting over again because he walks from one part of the of the stadium to the next. And the people that are in front of the microphone where, that he's walking to it's like you know they start freaking out again so it's like the top of show every two songs so it's really fun um so how, that's how do, in that moment though, i'm curious how do you handle audience mics differently do you ride them depending on the direction he's facing at that time i do and um initially uh when i got the gig we didn't have audience mics um because we were using um uh we were using uh 105s and uh, they picked up so much ambient noise um, that I didn't really need it. And um, at some point, the um, front of house engineer, uh, who's also named George, and a great fellow, uh, decided that we were switching microphones. Um, and you know, he's been there 20 years. I have not, so there was no discussion to be had there. We just switched. And um, so I had to introduce audience mics. And initially, I had just a stereo pair. Um, over by me and that worked fine for a while until one night I had a 15 year old kid or so be right behind me on the barricade that was yelling George George I freaking love you George all like all night long and so I had to turn the audience mics off and I had nowhere else to go so now I have um, four stereo pairs um, one at each of his mic positions um, and we do uh, video all the shows and so I initially put the audience mics where I wanted them and the show director um, called them and me a foul word and told me to move them so I had to reposition um, <coughs> I had to reposition my audience mics and uh, love you Stacy if you see this um, and, uh, <laughs> was that like a was it a sight lines problem what, what was the concern they were they were coming up on camera and he thought they were ugly so um, I have four stereo pairs and it's actually nice because wherever he is, I can go there. Mm. Um, and I do have all of my, uh, what I use most of the time. I have all of my, um, audience mics in a, uh, DCA or MCA. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just ride that most of the time, unless there's a problem. Um, because I don't, he's one of the few artists that I don't give a lot of, uh, ambience to because he just, he doesn't like it. So I'm riding them, um, riding them up and down, uh, in between, uh, songs. Right. And honestly, I don't, uh, I'm calling myself out cause I don't think he knows that I'm doing it. I think, uh, the, the point was when we switched vocal mics, my challenge was to make it sound the same consistency with, uh, most artists and especially with him, uh, was the key. So I had to make that transition, um, seamless so that the front of house guy could get away with switching microphones, basically. Basically, my challenge was to make the, um, the, the XVs sound like the 105s by introducing, and that's, that's been a challenge for a lot of reasons, not just the ambience. 
Um, so I tend to ride all eight of them together. Uh, but I can, you know, if I've got someone screaming or, you know, uh, usually it's someone whistling. Um, if, if you've got a whistler in the crowd, then I'll have to duck or kill or re-EQ um, those microphones. And I do actually have some, um, some dynamic EQ and multiband compression to kind of catch those types of things uh, as much as possible. Uh, but it's, it's unusual because when I do, uh, a lot of, um, pop and rock, I usually base my mix around the ambience mics. Hmm. Um, and I don't consider them, um, crowd mics in most, George is probably the most crowd mic, um, thing that I've done. Cause that's really all it's for is so that he can hear the room in between songs. I usually use ambience mics to give some energy to my mix. Um, and, uh, I've actually you know, done uh, monitor mixing classes where um, we were supposed to talk about a lot of things, but ended up just doing an entire hour on, on the ambience miking techniques. Um, because to me, that was like the whole, um, the whole pivot of getting people off of wedges and onto in-ears. That was my secret sauce where people said, I'll, I'll never use in-ears because, you know, they, they suck. And right. so I've been sharing that um, with a lot of uh, house of worship engineers um, because there's a lot of challenges, you know, with some, especially musical directors and lead pastors and things like that, that are clinging to their wedges because they don't want to be disconnected from their congregation. Um, and by doing effective, uh, not crowd miking, ambient miking, right. um, and, you know, making that, uh, a dominant part of the mix. And basically, like I said, the foundation of their mix, you can, you can convince people that, um, being on in-ears doesn't suck and that you can have a conversation without pulling your ears out all the time. You can hear people sneezing and you can hear the squeak of the kick pedal behind you. And you can hear, you know, those kinds of things right. that you're used to hearing, um, continue with your ears in. I, I, I mentioned uh, so, one of the hardest things when incorporating the ambient mic is, um, not making things just a wash. And so you you've introduced so much ambience that you've now actually took away the the whole point of having clarity of having in ears in. What what's the in a short sentence or a phrase like what's how do you what's the delicate line there of not getting just a complete wash but still creating that space? Um, it's take delicate EQ, but honestly, sometimes I don't because a lot it's very counterintuitive, and that everyone thinks, and that's why people don't do ambient miking the way that I do, I don't know anybody that uses ambient mics the way that I do. Um, and, um, because it's so counterintuitive and you would think that that wash would just ruin you. Um, where I have found with experience that a lot of times that's what people are looking for. Hmm. Um, because the, what I do, anytime I go into a new mixing situation, um, especially with someone that's been on wedges is I go and I listen to the room without my ears in and understand the room and I do it up on stage, you know, at their mic position. Um, and then I, you know, listen with the band playing, I listen to the room and I try and put myself and then I kind of take my ears in and out and I'm trying to get some consistency between the two things. If I'm working with a, a wedge person, you know, that, that doesn't work for everyone. Some people want to be isolated. You know, um, George is one of those people. He doesn't, you know, we play awful, um, sonically awful rooms, I mean, football stadiums and um, basketball arenas that are just the the worst. Um, I feel sorry for it's one of the many reasons why I'm glad that I don't do front of house. We have over <laughs> 400 boxes of PA Oof. on that show. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a nightmare for the SE and the, the front of house um, guy. I'm glad it's not my problem. I mean, um, but that, stuff you know those 400 boxes of pa end up in all of my stuff too so um it's you know it's constantly um so thankfully he's not looking for a live mix but what i would say is that even though it seems like it would be destructive if you're having problems with an artist not feeling connected give it a shot you know it's but, interesting though and but, I, i'm pretty sure it's something that we haven't really talked about on this show yet so i'm i'm very interested to hear about this at least not to that degree i the other the other thing um I would imagine the benefit of having ambient mics done well is that 
uh, by nature, someone's first instinct uh, when they're not liking their ears is to pull one ear out. And so if I imagine the upside of using the ambient is that you can have a much safer because that's the whole thing, right? It's safer experience by keeping both ears in and then working them to getting more comfortable because of that, right? It's got to be a byproduct of that. Yeah. After my relationship with the artist, the next most important thing to me is my point of reference. I, my, I live and die by my point of reference. If I don't have a good point of reference, I can't mix effectively. If I don't know what they're hearing, then I, you know, what am I doing? I'm completely flying blind. So I spend a lot of time on stage during soundcheck. Um, I was an early adopter of, of doing remote, you know, with iPads and things like that. I don't use them during the show, but during soundcheck, that's my life's blood. I will, I will go and stand uncomfortably close to the back of my artists uh, while they're performing, if they'll let me, so that I can get in their headspace and hear, you know, it sounds way different where they're standing than where I'm standing. Um, especially now with sub steering, you know, front of house engineers have found it really effective to steer their sub lobes right on top of monitor world. So, <laughs> you know, so my, my, that's low on purpose, Mike, that's on purpose. Completely, it, I, absolutely. I know it is because it's the one place where you're not going to affect anyone that matters. Right. You're, it's, I, I yes, don't, us, matter, us so. modern engineers don't matter. So yeah. Right. Yeah, um, why don't you steer it onto the tracks guy? You know, <laughs> the idea of getting your physical head, where the artist is, regardless of whether they're on wedges or whether they're on ears, is something early on that was very critical. Um, combination of also understanding the resonance of your own head, right? So it's one it's one thing to like um, so you have to keep in mind what's around them ambiently, the resonance of their own head at the same time. So you, it might sound perfect if you're not singing, but as soon as you start singing on top of it, like I can't sing, but I had to get very comfortable with attempting to sing for myself for tuning so you can get used to that jaw bone and ear bone resonance that's going to affect the mm. singer ultimately just yes getting yourself in the headspace is huge yeah that point of reference is crucial and that's why you know when when people pull one ear out or they wear ears with um, ports in them or god forbid the ambient 3ds um which i've had to work with it's great tech but um anytime you separate the engineer and the artist, the listener, that that's a problem for me because I don't know what they're getting. And that's again, where, where the ambience mics come in really handy. Is it, you know, then I have control of it and I can put us both in the same space. So sealed ears, both in, I feel like if that ear is popping out, I have failed, you know, and some artists just take some coaxing, but I will immediately go, Hey, I, you know, at the next stop, I saw you pop your ear out what were you feeling? What were you, what were you missing? And let's work on that. You know, do you need more of something in this particular point that, you know, when I watch Saturday night live or something like that, and I see that ear come up, I'm like, that that's a failure point to me. You know, yeah. you haven't done, you haven't done your gig. Um, and back to the, the ambient thing. I think another thing uh, that I should mention is that I don't, my mic choice is way different. You know, usually people do crowd mics and they'll put like shotguns, or something like that. Um, I will use things with much tighter polar patterns, uh, and I'll use things um, like uh, hypercardioids or figure eights that give me a front and a rear. Um, so my mic choice is way different because my application is way different. So I think that would contribute to, like you said, the the washiness, because I don't use such a wildly open microphone in in most instances, and my placement is way different. Um, I place them actually in within the band, not, hmm. um, out in the corners of the stage. Um, so that, that makes a huge difference in, in what you're picking up and, and what the wash is. I mean, if I can get, a, if I'm only doing ambience for the, the, uh, the artist or the main person or the lead singer or whatever, I will try and do a binaural type thing and get as close to their headspace as I can. Um, you know, I've done, I've done a pair of electrics and binaural on someone's vocal mic stand before. Hmm. Um, you know, if you can get away with it, um, you can do really cool stuff with that. I worked for an artist for years, um, who every time he did call and response with his microphone, I was riding that on the crowd mics. And he thought that that was just happening because he was pointing his microphone out. He, it was literally like five years before he realized that I was doing that. Um, 
and with that particular one, I had so much um, active queuing going on. Um, I was anti uh, recall snapshot scene, whatever you want to call it for a long time. And so I was still mixing very analogy old school. And so I was doing my um, ambience queuing with a stereo foot pedal. So I had, you know, hands on the faders, but I was riding the crowd mics with my, with my right foot. Wow. So, um, so, you know, you do what you got to do sometimes, but like I said, I, I have found great success with my ambient miking technique. And so it's become like a, a fundamental part. It's like, um, the bangs method. You, you, I'll wait for the book. Yeah. yeah <laughs> right. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. And that's been one of the really cool things about this, um, downtime is that, you know, people have had the time and the audience to be able to share all of these things that, that we all do. And it's fascinating. You know, mm -hmm. um, I know you guys have seen Drew's videos. I mean, he's so good at it. Um, uh, he doesn't, I don't know that he agrees with me, but uh, I think you guys would agree with me that, you know, his videos are really good and uh, informative. <laughs> That's and funny because he, pretentious. he goes, he's like, dude, I hate this. He's like, it's so much work, you know, and it, it, it really yeah. is. Uh, but we've seen, I mean, you know, as we talked about with Joe, it's been amazing and very inspirational to see all these people uh, to, the, to the top dogs in the field so freely volunteer like hey you know hey we all have to sit at home right now so let me tell you how i do my thing and he's going to tell you how he does his thing and it's it's been really cool and it's it's a blessing that our industry has reacted that way i think because a lot of industries sort of just imploded and um you know we're all in that we're all in a terrible boat you know in terms of our gigs but the way that we've responded by trying to boost each other up has been really uh really cool and i'm really happy to see that and i'm glad that uh, you know, it's been our goal with, with with this show to do that in our own little way, at least. And and you too, thank you, Mike, for for coming on and sharing your recipe, man. It's really cool. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. Uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, I thank you for what you do. 